or, you know, they, they want to classify us by race and by gender and by education and by how much money we make and all these things. But, but when God looks at us, and of course, he's, you know, he's not blind. He knows we're, we're black and white and men and women and young and old. He knows all that. But the fact is, when he looks at us, he sees really two groups of people. And that is, you are a believer or you are an unbeliever. That's, that's what matters, right? It's, uh, in, in fact, if I, when I preach again, I'm, I am so caught up right now in this thing about identity. The whole world is all off, off on all these identities. I'm a white Christian, a black Christian, a gay Christian, uh, whatever you want to identity. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have no identity. It is Him who lives, not me. It's not about who I am or any of that stuff. It's about Him. And so we, we, we've got all these classifications, but the Bible just says you, you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. And see, you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. I told the kids last night, there is no gray area. There's not a bunch of people who are Satan worshipers and God worshipers and there's a gray area in the middle. No, you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. It's, it's one or the other. You are a child of promise or you're a child of paganism. You are, you are a lover of God or you're a lover of self. You are one of the few or you're one of the, the many. And that was the question I asked the kids. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a believer or you are, are you an, an unbeliever? Because you see, this is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible and we've seen it in Genesis from the very beginning. You've got two brothers. You've got Cain and Abel and one brother says, I'll do it God's way. And the other brother says, I'll do it my way. There's always a choice, right? You're in one group or the, the other. We saw it before the flood when you had a few men like Enoch who walked with God. But the fact is, the vast majority went their own way. It's always this, are you a child of promise? Or are you gonna, do you choose promise or do you choose paganism? Do you choose faith or do you choose works? One or the other. It's, it's very clear in the Bible that this, there's a division here. We saw it, of course, in the flood itself when you've got eight people that believe the promise and were saved on that ark, and the vast majority of people, untold numbers of people, perished because they chose their own way. And by the way, the story continues all through the New Testament, down throughout history, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 13-14, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, this is something that, this is a verse that probably we should all just spend a lot of time meditating on that verse. Why? Is it, why is it uh, easy to go to hell? Why is that easy? Well, it's easy because we are born into this world rebellious. We are born into this world sinners. We are born into this world with a wicked nature. All you have to do to go to hell is just do what comes natural. It's like breathing. You don't have to think about breathing, do we? You just do it. You don't have to think about being a sinner. You just do it because it comes natural. It's easy. A lot of people are on that road. That's the, that's the big road. There's, it doesn't take any work to do that. But it's hard to go against that natural condition. It's hard to go... I was telling the kids last night, 
that it, the sign of a true Christian is you come to a point in your life and your, your sin nature, your old self wants to do that, and the Bible says, no, do this. Go this way. But I don't want to go this way. I want to go that way. But then you yield to the Bible. You yield to the Holy Spirit. That's a sign that He's inside of you, that He's working on you. You see, but that's a fight. That's a struggle to defeat self. Every time you come to that choice, that fork, that's, it's not, that's not easy. That's hard. But for the few, the Bible says it does, it does happen. Because man, even though we're born into this condition, God doesn't leave us there. We're not fixed irretrievably as a rebellious sinner against God. In fact, way back in Genesis 3, you'll remember, God granted us a promise that He's going to send a Redeemer who is going to crush the head of Satan. He told Eve that back in in Genesis chapter 3. But this one that's going to come, who's able to change us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the one that's able to move us from a child of Satan to a child of God, this is a Redeemer who's going to come born of the seed of a woman. And that's why genealogies are important. Because when you come to a genealogy in the Bible, many times there are... In fact, I'd say almost all the times, if you really read them, they're a testament to the promises of God. They're not just there for... for God just says, I need to fill some material, I'm going to throw these in there. They're there as a testament to the promise of, of God. Now, as we know, as we just finished up uh, coming out of, of chapters 8, 9, and 10... We know that Noah had three sons that came off that ark, right? They had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so this Redeemer that God has promised to us is going to come from the line of one of those three sons. And back in chapter 10, God gave us a genealogy, and we went through that genealogy. But you'll remember I told you back then that that was a selective genealogy. It didn't list all the sons. It didn't list all the families. Because the whole point of that genealogy was just to, to, to show the, how the nations got started. Okay, Remember, Israel was about to go into the promised land. This genealogy is going to be uh, read to them so they understand the history of, of the nations that they're going to encounter. So that chapter 10's genealogy was very uh, selective. But today we're going to get another genealogy. And this genealogy is going to be very specific or very definitive and it is the genealogy of one of Noah's sons and that is Shem okay and it it's going to be very specific because it has a much different purpose and its purpose is is this you see Shem is going to be the chosen son of Noah of whom God is going to bring Jesus Christ f- through his lineage in other words Jesus Christ will be able to chase trace his lineage always all the way back to Shem. So, so Shem is the elect line. It is the chosen line. It is the, the covenant line. And so God is going to give us, or Moses is going to give us here in chapter 11, a very specific genealogy of Shem. And the whole point is to get us to Abraham. That's the whole point of this genealogy. Get us to a man named Abraham. Because Abraham is, is the one that's going to carry on the promise. Okay? And in fact, I, it can be argued, I would say, that next to Jesus Christ, He is the most important man in the Bible when it comes to God's plan of redemption. There's a really interesting thing going on. I told you guys last week that chapter 11 is kind of a pivot point. 
between two sections of Genesis. All the way up to now, up to chapter 11, we've been talking about origins, right? We said this last week. And then all of a sudden, here at the end of chapter 11, it's going to flip over to a man named Abram. And, and think about it this way. We have spent 11 chapters basically covering 2,000 years of history. Okay? 11 chapters that we've gone through has covered 2,000 years. The next 14 chapters is all about Abraham. In other words, you, it takes 11 chapters to cover 2,000 years, and then God slows it down, and it takes 14 chapters to cover 175 years. So we, this, this, it's like we, we put on the brakes and says, there's something about this guy that is important. Very, very important. And so Genesis is just going to slow down as far as time goes and say, let's talk about this guy, this guy named, named Abram. Let's, look, let's start in verses 10 through 11. Genesis 11, <coughs> 10 through 11. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a parkshod two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered a parkshod 500 years, and he had other sons and other daughters. So we go back to our little map that we had. Uh, you remember a few weeks ago, we, we, we showed you this. I say several weeks ago now. So uh, basically the flood occurs roughly 1,656 years after Adam. Now that's roughly or approximately somewhere in there. Uh, we know from chapter 10 that, that Noah lives 350 years after the flood. Um, so he dies at 950 years old. His son Shem uh, lives for 502 years. He was 100 years old roughly at the flood. He had a son two years after the flood and he lived another 500 years, and he died. And two years after the flood, he had a son named Aparkshot. And look, verse, we'll move on. When Aparkshot had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Aparkshot lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So Aparkshot, who was born two years after the flood, uh, he, when he's 35 years old, he has a son named Shelah. Uh, he lives another roughly 430 years, and he dies. When Sheila had lived 30 years, he fathered, fathered Eber. And Sheila lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So Sheila's born roughly 37 years after the flood. Um, he, he lives another 430, I'm sorry, he lives up to 433 years. 69 years after the flood, he has a son named Eber. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So roughly 103 years after the flood, this kid named Peleg is born. Now he's a little bit important because you remember back in chapter 10, it says to Eber were born two sons. Uh, the, the other one's, I think, name was Jotham, and one of his sons was Eber. Uh, I'm sorry, one of the sons of Eber was named Peleg, and it says this, they named him Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. Now, we're not sure exactly what that meant, but most scholars believe that means that that's when the Tower of Babel happened. That's when the nations were divided. It's not the earth itself being divided, but it's just a, a way to say that the, 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 the families of the earth, or the nations of the earth were divided. So if that's, if that's what that means, that means the Tower of Babel happened roughly a hundred years after the flood. So it didn't take a long time, did it, for things to go uh, downhill. Verses 18 to 19. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru, 
And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So again, here we are roughly 133 years after the flood, and he has a son, but he only lives 239 years. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug, and Ru lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So now we're down to about 165 years after the flood, and this, this, this kid named Sarug is born. And when Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and he had other sons and daughters. All right, here we are, but roughly 195, 200 years after the flood, we've got a guy named Nahor. Now I want to point out a couple of things here. A couple of things you should notice. Does everybody notice how they're living less and less and less and less and less? So we started out with Noah at the very top, who's living 950 years. His son Shem lived 600 years. Then we get down to people living 400 years. Now we're down to Sarug, who only lives 230 years. So you can see their lifespans. And you'll, you'll really, if you'll notice Peleg, something happens after the flood. And it really starts to go down. So things change. The environment changes. Remember we talked about this. The flood changed everything. It changed the atmosphere. Before that, everything was a very, a very warm climate. Uh, after the flood, you've got the ice ages. You've got the poles forming. Uh, you, everything changes. And, and you'll almost notice right after the flood, uh, uh, they start going downhill. Ages start going less and less and less and less. You'll also notice... Noah had his kids at 500. Now the kids are being born at 30, 35, 29. So, people, so, so they're starting to have their children much, much earlier. Verses 24 to 25. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, how, now here we are 224 years after the flood. Nahor only lives 148 years. So we've gone from 950 to 600 to 400 to 200. Now we're all the way down to uh, 200. I'm sorry, down to 148 years, and we get the birth of this guy named Terah. Now Terah is important. In fact, you'll notice here that the, the terminology kind of changes in verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So it gets all the way down to him, and he has three sons. So again, roughly three, now we are three centuries, 300 years after the flood, and a, and a man named Abram is, is born onto the earth. And that's what this genealogy is all about, to get us to this guy. The next 14 chapters of Genesis is going to be about him. All about him. So there is something about Abram that is very, very, very important to the redemptive plan of God on this, on this earth. And, and so God gives us this genealogy to get us to this point. Now, why Abram? Why, why, not, why not Nahor? Why not Terah? Why not Peleg? Why not Saru? Why not Ru? Why not one of the... Why Abraham? Why does God choose Abraham? I want, you to, I want to show you something about Abram, just so everybody is clear. In Joshua 24, and you don't have to turn there, but this is a very famous chapter. This is the chapter where Joshua is speaking to the children of Israel. He's about, at the end of the chapter, he dies. This is kind of like his last hurrah. In fact, it's the chapter where he gives the famous speech, choose you this day who you will serve, right? We all know that speech. This is that chapter. 
Very early in that chapter, Joshua is speaking to the people, and he says this, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they what? Served other gods. And he specifically calls out Terah, the father of Abraham. And he says, they served other gods. See, what you need to see is Terah is not a believer. This isn't some kind of deal where Shem was a believer and he passed it to Parkshad, and a Parkshad was a believer, all the way down to Terah, and Terah was a believer. It's not some kind of family thing. Terah, Abraham's father, is not a believer. He serves other gods. He is a pagan. He is an idolater. So when Abraham is born, these three boys, him and his two brothers, they're born into paganism. They're born into a family of idolaters. So he's not choosing Abraham because somehow all these families pass down this faith. That's not what's going on at all. We know his father was an idolater and he was born into idolatry. In fact, we can even dig a little further than that. And look, if you look at history, you can maybe get a few clues about Terah. For example, his name, Hebrew scholars says his name uh, is, is related to the Hebrew word yera, which is the Hebrew word for moon. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, look at verses 27 to 28. And we learn a little bit more about this family. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So what this tells us is they were born in a land or in a city called Ur. Now, the neat thing about this is you can visit this city today. It has been excavated. Okay, they found this city. Um, it's either in southern Iraq, I forget, but it's down, uh, at that time it was on the very tip of the Persian Gulf. But they have excavated this city. They've excavated homes, they've excavated temples, they've, they've found pottery, they've found inscriptions, they've found all kind of stuff about this city where Abraham lived. And it was what they found is it was known for its worship of the moon god. That's what they were known for. They were very, if you, they've excavated temples and they worship the moon god. In fact, if you look up Ur on Wikipedia, it says this, the city's patron deity was Nana, the Sumerian moon god, and the name of the city literally means the abode of Nana. Now, for those grandmamas out there whose kids call you Nana, I got nothing to say to you about that. I, you got to you got to deal with that on your uh, on your own. But that city was known for worship of the of the moon god. Okay, we we can find other things. Look at verse twenty nine. And Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, names are important. They, they help us figure things out sometimes because people tend to name children, not everybody, but people sometimes tend to name children related to what's important to them. We do that today, don't we? We name our children after relatives. Um, I named all my children after Bible names because the Bible was, that was so important to me. I wanted my children to have strong Bible names. Now, you don't have to do that. That's your business. That doesn't, that doesn't confer anything on your children. doesn't make them 
saved or anything like that, right? It's just, it was just something that was important to Kathy and I, and so we picked strong Bible names uh, for our children. But people did that today, and they did it then. They would name their children after things. So Tara is named Moon because he grew up in an area probably where they worshiped the moon god, and that was probably important to his father. So he named his, his firstborn uh, after the moon god. There's another name here, which is Milka, that's given to us. Milka means queen. And she is named after the goddess Ishtar, who is known as the queen of heaven. In fact, several hundred years later, so here, here, here we are in this city, Ur of the Chaldeans, and they worship the, the moon god, right? And, and they name their kids after these goddesses and gods that they worship. And so Milka is named after the goddess Ishtar, which is the queen of heaven. Several hundred years later, God says this to Jeremiah. And this is, by the way, after the Israelites are in the promised land. God says, do you see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead the dough. Knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So several hundred years later, they've entered the land, the promised land, and they're still, they're, they're actually still, there's, there's, there's uh, vestiges of this worship of the goddess Ishtar. They're still offering cakes to her. So this, it never goes away. This idolatry just stays within these families and is, is carried down. This is what Abraham, this is my point. This is what Abraham was born into. He's born into the worship of the moon god. He's born into the, the worship of this queen of heaven. This is what this whole city is about. He is an idolater. He's not saved. He's not a Christian. He's not a man of faith. He's, he's an idolater. He's a pagan. Verse 30. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Now, that is just a very small line in a, in, a, in a big chapter. It's just one little verse. But as we all know, that is going to become very, very important down the line. It's, in fact, it's going to become absolutely crucial to our story. you got to remember, we are tracing the lineage of the covenant line, right? We're going from Shem to Abraham, and eventually we need to get to Jesus Christ. But how is the covenant line going to continue if Abraham can't have children? So this is a big deal, because we want, Abraham's got to have a son to go, who also have a son, who will eventually get us to Jesus Christ, will get us to this Redeemer. So this is the situation. At this point, we got a real problem, because he has no children. Okay, so this is the situation that eventually is going to launch Abram's faith in, in God. Look at verse 31. Now this, to me, is the most interesting verse in the whole chapter. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran... They settled there. They didn't just stop there. It it wasn't just, hey, let's stay here a a week and resupply. They settled there. In other words, they they just, they, they made a home there. Now, here's a question. Why did they leave this Ur? They had, by the way, Ur of the Chaldeans was a very prosperous city. 
It's right on the, like I said, that, in that day, today it's actually inland more, but in that day it was right on the, the tip of the Persian Gulf. Very prosperous. They had a lot of trade coming through there. They had a good home. It was the land of their kindred. They had grown up there. They had family there. And all of a sudden, they get up and they leave. Why did they do that? Well, the New Testament actually tells us in Acts chapter 7. Everybody remember when Stephen gets up and gives a speech and he gets stoned? This is part of his speech. He said this, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So God comes to Abraham and actually appears to him. Now, we don't know how. doesn't give us the details. But he appears to Abraham. This is while he was still in Ur, before he went to Haran. And he said to him, now watch what he says to him. Go out from your land and from your what? Now, what does that mean? Go out from your kin. That means leave who? Leave your family. Leave your father. Leave your mother. Leave your brothers. Leave, leave your kindred. Go and go to the land that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. And it says he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. Now, let's go back to verse 31 and let's read it again. So we know now that God has told Abraham, get up and go, leave your family and go to this land that I'm going to show you. Now let's go back to Genesis. Terah, this is Abraham's father, took Abram his son, and he took Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson. He took Sarai, which is Abram's wife, and they left Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. All right, now, if you look at this map, Haran is up on the up in northern Syria. Um... Ur is down here, again, you can see the Persian Gulf in the lower right-hand corner. In that day, the Persian Gulf, they can actually tell the Persian Gulf was much further inland. So there's been a lot of change since then. So now Ur of the Chaldeans. But Jerusalem, the land of Canaan, promise is, is directly due west of Ur. So it would have made sense for them to go straight west. That would have been the shortest uh, line between two points. But instead, they go all the way up north. They come to a city of Haran, and then they come, eventually Abraham will come down the coastline and come into the land of Canaan. Now, why, I want to know why he did that. Why do you go, why do you go that way? Why don't you just go, uh, due west? Well, part of it can be explained. Let me back up here. That area out there in the middle is all desert. That's part of it. If you cross that and go west, you've got to take your caravan, you've got to take your entourage, and you've got to cross all the way across desert. And that's not a good, right? That's not a good way. So more than likely what they did is they stayed along the Euphrates River where they'd have a source of water. There were probably cities and places they could stop along the way. It just made sense. Let's go up this way and then we'll come down the coastline. It's going to make traveling a lot easier. We make sure we've got food and water places to resupply and things like that. So that's probably why they, they did it. But then they get to Haran and they stop. They're supposed to be going to the land of Canaan, but they don't. They stop. Again, I want to know why. Why did, you, why did you stop there? Well, listen, I can't tell you for sure because the Bible doesn't just come out and say this is why they stopped. But I think it's got a lot to do with Terah the father. If you read between the lines here, there's something going on. First of all, 
He told Abraham, go out from your land and from your what? Your kindred. But so I can see Abraham going to his dad and say, Dad, this, this God has appeared to me. And he's told me that I'm supposed to leave this place. I saw him. I had a vision. And I'm supposed to leave this place and I'm supposed to go to the land of Canaan. I'm supposed to go to this land that he's going to show me. And somehow, Terah says, well, I'll go with you. Right? Because, again, Abram's supposed to leave him. And Terah says, I'm going to go. I'll go with you, son. I don't know why, but he decides to go with him. And in fact, when they get to Haran, in, in Genesis 11, verse 32, it says, the days of Terah were 205 years, and he died in Haran. So when they get to Haran, they stop. And they don't move until, until Terah dies. And it's like when Terah dies, Abraham's like, okay, I can, I can go on now. Something about this dad calls them to stop in Haran. By the way, Haran is also a known city that has been excavated by archaeologists. Another interesting fact, it is also known for the worship of the moon god. So maybe Terah, they're, they're on this journey and they've left the Ur of the Chaldeans. He's left his gods behind. He's left familiarity behind. And he walked, works his way up the Euphrates and he comes to this Haran and he, I smell that moon god. Boy, this feels familiar to me. I like, everybody with me? And he says, let's just, let, you know, all that stuff you heard, maybe you didn't really hear it. Maybe this is where we need to be. You see, I mean, there's a, there's a whole sermon there. You know, is there a terror in our lives? Is God calling us to do something and there's somebody that says, no, let's just stop right here. There, I, again, I, I'm reading between the lines here, but Terah, to me, the way I read it, he shouldn't have been with Abraham to start with. And so they stop in Haran and they settle there until Terah uh, dies. Okay, we're done with that chapter. Next week we're going to turn to chapter 12 and when we do, um, we're going to spend the next 14 chapters looking at Abraham. And he is very, very, very important. Okay, so it's uh, it, we're gonna we're not gonna necessarily slow down. I, I know some of you are thinking, "My, can we even go any slower? We've been here eight months." We're not gonna slow down. We're gonna keep moving, but the Bible is gonna slow down. The next fourteen chapters, we're only gonna cover one hundred seventy-five years. That's it. So it's it it wants us to. There's something about this guy. That the Bible, Moses just stops and says, let's take our time and make sure we understand his life because there's some things there for us. Now, before we leave chapter 11, I want to make a few applications uh, for us. Now, genealogies, let's just all admit it. Something like this doesn't seem really interesting when you compare it to books like Galatians or Romans. It's got all this theology in it. Sometimes we might even wonder, well, why does God even, even put stuff like this uh, in here, why does he even take up uh, you know time and, and pages of scripture to do this? But again, the point of this is to show us that God is involved in history. I, I read a thing this week, and I thought it was pretty cool. They said history literally means His story, not my story, not your story. It's His story. That's what history is. It's God working out His plans and His purposes. And, and that's what this is showing us, that all this stuff is happening. People are being born and living and dying, and God's choosing, and God's working. You're going to see that here in just, in just a minute. God's making choices that are going to affect people's um, eternal destinies. And so that's what it, this, these things are showing us. God is working in 
history. I want to show you a few things. Number one, God's plan of salvation in history always involves His choice. Have you all noticed... We've started out in Genesis 1, and we got all these people, and then we get to Noah, and and there's always, there's a real narrowing process starting to happen, right? Adam has many sons. The Bible tells us he had other sons and daughters, but he chooses Seth. And, And Seth eventually brings us to Noah. And Noah, out of Noah, he has three sons, and God chooses Shem. Shem has five sons. But God chooses a parkshod to, to, to be the line of Jesus Christ. Again, if you go back and read that genealogy, in every single case it says he had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters. But God chose one. He didn't choose the others. He chose one. Only one of those sons is being chosen. So there's a narrowing process that's, that's going on here. Why does God choose who he does? Why does he choose Shem? Why does he choose a parkshod? Why does he choose Peleg? Why does he get down and choose Abram? Is it because they're good people? Is it because somehow they're better than their, their brothers? Is it, is it because God looked out in history and said, you know, if I let this thing play out, that boy's gonna choose me? Well, it turns out none of that is the way it works. There's one thing at play in God's choosing, and that's grace. Grace isn't a new, just a, you know, we think sometimes grace is all about New Testament. No, grace is just as much Old Testament as it was new. God is choosing, <coughs> excuse me, He's doing it for one reason, because of grace. God's choosing always, always is 100% grace. It never has anything to do with human merit. As I said, Abraham is an idolater. He's born into paganism. He's born into idolatry. God looks down and chooses him for one reason, and that's because of grace. It's not anything that he... He didn't look ahead and he said, you know, Abraham's a... He's a fine guy. And if I if I use him, I'm going to be able to do some great, wonderful things. But see, if if God chose Abraham because somehow Abraham was a good man or a faithful man or a righteous man, then Abraham would be able to boast, well, God chose me because look look what I did. Look who I am. You see, salvation from start to finish, whether whether it's Abraham's salvation or it's yours and mine, it's always God. It's always God, 100%, and nothing from man. God's choice, God is narrowing down, He's making choices, and His choice is all that matters. Jeremiah, if you go back to Jeremiah 1.5, says that God knew Him. God consecrated Him. God set Him apart before he was formed in his mother's womb. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, God chose me even from my mother's womb. I mean, those, those should, I mean, I, that just blows our minds that God is choosing people even before they're born. He knows they're coming and says, I'm going to use that guy. I choose that guy. I choose her. I choose him. You see, the thing which separates Abram from his father The thing that separates Abram from his brothers is one thing and one thing only, and that is that God chose him. Without God's choosing, you just got religion. That's all it is. But when God chooses, crazy things happen, right? Eternal things happen. Salvation happens. So the story of Abraham shows us that God puts his hand 
What'd you say, Scooter? I got five. My clock is out. If y'all didn't notice, the Scooter's telling me I got five minutes. The story of Abraham shows us that God puts his hand on our lives before we even know it. God has his hands on our lives. Abraham's living in Ur. He's happy. He's, he's worshiping the moon god. He's, you know, it's a nice city. Everything's going along. And then one day, God appears to him. You see, God had a plan. <clears throat> God was making choices way back. Noah, Shem, a park shot, all the way down the line, God was choosing Abram. See, God does that. He, <clears throat> there are no mistakes. And I'll tell you something else here. <clears throat> God is able to take that one person and change a family. God is able to take that one person and change a nation. God is able to take that one person and change a, a world. What a hope that should be for us. And that, you know, it's not about, there's people, we were telling the kids this at, at, at Revolution. It's not about your, listen, you may come from a broken home. You may come from, from a family that's as pagan as it can get. And God can pick you and pick you up and change, rock you, not just rock your world, but rock their world. That is awesome, man. That's, God does that. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. God just, that's just grace. And thank God for it. Because I'm going to be honest, without it, not one of us would be sitting here today. It's His grace. It's not us. Last thing, God is slow. I don't know every way to tell you this. God is, just seems to me, to take His time doing anything. You know, even after God calls Abraham, they stop in Haran. And they, he's 75 years old when they leave Haran. I mean, that just, that's just crazy to me. Why doesn't he, why didn't he, why didn't he do that when he's 20? Why doesn't he give him Isaac when he's 30? So he's got all this time to make an impact for God. Why does he wait? You know, you understand that he comes to Abraham. Abraham's 75. He says, I'm going to give you a son. 25 years go by. Till he's a hunt, 25 years. No wonder Abraham's looking around like, what is going on here? Right? Because God just takes his time. And we, I don't understand that. Why does he wait so long sometimes? I don't have a, have a clue. It, for, from my perspective, it looks like sometimes there's a lot of wasted time. I've heard, I've had people tell me this. They've come to Christ when they're in their 50s or 60s and they just, why did he wait so long? Why did he wait so long to show this and reveal it and open my... I got no clue. But I can tell you this, God is never late. Right? He, things are always on a, on, just perfectly on schedule with his timing. He doesn't make any mistakes. And so you... That, and I'm going to tell you, that makes, me, that makes me feel a lot better. And it should be an encouragement. Because how many of you have, have chased rabbits and gone off and wasted years sometimes? Every single one of us says, has we've gone over here and we're like, man, why didn't I get over here? You know, and you just look back and it seems like all this just wasted time. It, and sometimes it just seems like it takes us so long to just figure out things that we should have learned a long time ago. But see, again, that's an encouragement to me because seeing how God works slowly in Abraham's life and things were still on track, sometimes he works pretty slowly in our life, but things are still on track. And these genealogies, once again, are teaching us that God is steadily moving, not only in history as a whole, but God is steadily moving in our life, and He's doing exactly what He wants to accomplish. One final thing, one individual can make an eternal difference. 
one individual can make an eternal difference. If Abraham's life tells us anything, is that one life yielded to God can rock this world. It, it can make a tremendous impact on human events. Now, I'm not saying anybody in here is going to be used to, to do what Abraham did. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, of course. But what I can tell you is this. If you yield your life to God, you will make an eternal difference. I can, I can, it might be in your family. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be in your community. But you yield your life to God, your life will not be lived in vain. Uh, next week, we turn to chapter 12. Again, from this point on, uh, chapters 12 through 26, it's all going to be about Abraham and his life and what we can learn from that. Let's pray. Father.